So a year and a half ago, we started a journey through uh, the what is commonly referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, it is the um, it is in Jesus' last hours, last evening, uh, where he gathers his disciples together, and it is this really, really unique part of Scripture where uh, we are allowed to eavesdrop in, to be flies on the wall um, of his last word to his disciples. It's by far the largest chunk of uh, conversation that we get between Jesus and his disciples. The only other one that comes close to it, obviously, would be the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. But that wasn't just given to his disciples. Um, That was given to his immediate disciples and then a crowd of people we're listening in. This is Jesus in a small room with his disciples, and it has been incredibly intimate, um, incredibly profound. He's let them in on just deep mystery and, and the depths of love and all these different things. Um, it is, it's, it's been amazing. Well, in this last chapter, in this last passage here, uh, as if it wasn't enough to be let in on the intimacy of Jesus and his disciples, um, we get to join the intimacy, literally. Uh, Jesus brings us into the room in this last passage. He has been speaking to the disciples. He has been praying to the Father about the disciples. Well, now he's about to pray for you, and I do mean that literally. Uh, Verse 20 sets it up. He says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, who is that? That's you. That's me. That's anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. We believe in the um, Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. The, the, the apostles are the foundation of this thing called the church. And all of us are the fruit of the apostolic ministry. Most specifically would be the apostolic authority behind the New Testament canon. We have believed upon Jesus because of their word. So when he says, I am praying for all of them who believe because of their word, he's praying for you. And I just for a moment indulge that. Indulge uh, that, that, that the Lord Jesus in his, in his omnipotent Um, omniscient power in this room while he's praying to the Father was thinking about you. Was thinking about your face, your story, your name. He was praying for you as intimately as you and a friend sit down to pray. You were on his heart. You were in his mind. And his prayer request for you could not be more important for us in our day. You know, nothing reveals, uh, nothing reveals more what we want than what we pray for, which can be a convicting exercise to evaluate your prayer life and see what you want, because it will tell you, it will tell you what you want. Well, here's Jesus, and he's praying for us, which means we get to see what he wants. More than anything else, if he were here and he said, let me pray for you. I can tell you what he would pray for you because he has done it and it's recorded in scripture. So this is what Jesus wants for us most of all. And it's interesting 
because I do believe, I, I do believe that Jesus was thinking about us. I do believe that Jesus was praying for us. And you know what? We need his prayer now more than ever. What he prays here for us is so timely, is so relevant to the world we inhabit. I don't have to tell you this. Our world is raging. It is raging. Disagreement is nothing new. For as long as people have had opinions, people have been having disagreements. What's new is this deep fortification of our disagreements. This, this, our beliefs are now guarded with this tribalism that is so fierce that to even engage, consider, befriend, or even listen to those outside our tribe, outside our opposing beliefs, is viewed as a compromise. What has forged this chasm between us? Why are we so angry? Why do we hate each other so much in our day? Researchers and those who are actually doing the academic research are, 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 are beginning to tell us that that we live, this is the consequence of the digital age that we now live in. The information that we now consume is almost exclusively digital. And because of that, you're kind of a puppet. You're kind of caught in the matrix in a little bit. Where you are being fed and manipulated and told what to believe all day long, whether you know it or not. What we consume is shaped by precise algorithms and artificial intelligence able to deliver content based solely upon you and your personal worldview. What is fed to you online believes what you believe, loves what you love, hates what you hate, fears what you fear, and never, ever, ever disagrees with you. Simply put, for the first time, it is now possible, dare I say probable, to exist within the confines of your own personal echo chamber to create a world around you that is just like you and the more we live there the more fortified that chamber becomes the more reinforced our tribalism becomes and the more we demonize those outside our worldview tribe now cultural developments aside The main point I want for us to see is this. Sadly, this divide now also defines the church as well. Take our culture's political divide. That's the low-hanging fruit. That's the easiest one to talk about. Our political divide. One of the great tragedies of modern Christianity is that we find more commonality with those of the same political persuasion, regardless of their beliefs or lack thereof in God, we find more in common with those of our political persuasion, irregardless of their beliefs in God. Likewise, we alienate ourselves from those who share our common faith, but disagree with our political persuasions. We even demonize them. We even view them as our enemies. Christians are just as angry, just as divided as the world around us. If you want to know how the church has become worldly in our day, it's that we have bought into the division and the toxic hatred of our world. Well, Jesus is praying against that. He is praying for you in this divided hour, saying, this cannot be for my people. 
He is praying against the divide that has infected our land, praying that in the midst of a raging culture, we would be one. That's what he wants more than anything else. He wants us to be one, this oasis of unity in a world divided. We're going to look at his prayer requests in two ways this morning, two simple questions that we want to ask. What does Jesus want? Why does Jesus want it? What does he want? Well, I've kind of already said it, and on the surface it seems uh, very obvious. What he wants is for us to be one. Three different times, three consecutive verses, 21. You can't, it's so obvious, you can't miss what he wants. Verse 21, that they may be one. Verse 22, that they may be one. Verse 23, that they may be perfectly one. So unity, oneness is what Jesus wants from us most of all. Pretty straightforward, except that his request is then qualified with a descriptive and that description makes all the difference for how we view what he means when he says one. What does he mean when he says that they may be one? Well, he shows us here. Verse 21, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. So what Jesus does is he grounds our oneness in the oneness of God. His prayer is that we would be one as our God is one. If you have been with us through this series, then you know how prevalent the doctrine of the Trinity has been. More so than anywhere else in Scripture is John 13 through 17. And now, one last time, he invokes the doctrine of the Trinity, not as a doctrine, not merely as a doctrine, but as a model, as an aim for his people. What does God want from us? What God himself is. Let's ponder again the Trinity, this time as our standard of oneness, because that's what he does. I want them to be one as we are one. What we discover as we explore the the, the mystery of the Trinity is uncompromising unity and uncompromising diversity. And I say uncompromising because we tend to think these two are opposite and cannot coexist. To have one must compromise the other. But within the Trinity, unity and diversity exist as co-equals in a very mysterious way. Notice the grammar of verse 21, which seems contradictory, granted. That they may all, plural, be one singular. That makes no sense. How can all be one? Jesus says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now notice the clear distinction there. He does not say, just as you, Father, are I and I am you. He says, that's not Trinity. That's, that's, that's what we call modality. That's That's condemned as heresy, where God takes on different modes. So sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Spirit. That's not what Jesus says here. He views himself and his Father as two distinct persons. And yet, though they are two distinct persons, they are at the same time one God. Jesus does not say, we are two. He says, we are one. Now, I know you you just had a confession of faith. Do you know how crazy it is what you just said you believed? Will said, 
how many gods are there? And you said, oh, there's only one true and living God. Next question, how many persons? Well, there's three. What? It's just trinity math. One plus one plus one equals one. It's mysterious. It's incomprehensible. The theological term is it's inscrutable. But it's beautiful. Because within the inscrutability, we discover the fullest expression of both unity and diversity existing together and not compromising the other, which is what Jesus is praying will exist with us. So let's take that Trinity doctrine and apply it to us. Unity and diversity together as one. First, unity. God's people are to embody unity as defined by the Trinity. Now, this obviously means, if we're going to be united as the Trinity is united, now this obviously means that dissension, slander, gossip, unkindness, things like that are off the table for God's people. Not allowed to happen. Okay? There's no exception there. We are not allowed to divide ourselves. And when we do, we inevitably will. When we do, it is required of us to apologize, repent, and be reconciled to heal the unity that we have broken. So that's a given. The you can't do these things is a given. But remember, we are defining unity by the Trinity. And this is much more than just avoiding division. Much more than just avoiding disunity. It is depths of unity such that Jesus says to the Father, I am in you and you are in me. Never mistake the mere absence of disunity as the presence of true unity. Here's why I say that. You can have a community... And there's a lot of these. We're actually really good at this in the PCA. You can have a community of Christ followers that are happy, that smile at each other, that walk through the halls. How you doing? I'm doing great. All, you know, we're, we're good. No obvious disunity. No big fighting, cliques, divisions among them. You can have a church like that. And that church is not one. Because oneness defined by the Trinity is much more than the absence of disunity. It is, I am in you and you are in me. What this means at the most basic level, autonomous, anonymous Christianity is likewise unacceptable. It is unacceptable to divide, but it's also unacceptable to not have a depth of being known fully. Like the Trinity is known. Slipping in and out of church. Avoiding community. Avoiding membership. Just coming in to do the church thing and getting out. That's what Jesus is praying against. When he says, I and you and you and me. He is speaking of intimacy. Vulnerability. Fully known. And fully knowing each other. And basically all those things that make so many of us squirm. Last week, I talked briefly about the social media narcissism of millennials and Generation Z. But this week, I want to say that those older among us, by older means basically if you're older than me. I am, I am the cutoff of millennials. Um, so it doesn't apply to me, it applies to you. you know. Basically, if you're older than me, please listen. 
I know that all of the nauseating vulnerability and granted at times oversharing is hard for you. But may I suggest that this is probably where you could learn most from the younger among us. The put on a smile, pretend things are good, keep conversation at a surface level brand of Christianity is being rebuked by the younger generation and may we heed their rebuke. We need them to show us what it looks like to do authentic community that is vulnerable and known. Jesus says, I in you and you in me. At the very least, that means you have to let someone in. So this Trinity unity is much more than just avoiding disunity and not dividing us around here. It is the pursuit of deep, intimate knowing and being known as the Trinity has modeled for us. It's not just unity, though. It's diversity. Again, though they are one, they are at the same time distinct. Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not Jesus. So a common misconception we tend to have is that unity equals uniformity. We know we are to be united as one, but a misapplication of that is to form a forced conformity of uniformity community. Basically, we got to be one. Well, the easiest way to do that is just to get together a bunch of people who are just like me. We'll just be one. See, we like each other. How easy was that? That's, 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 that's not what we're talking about here. It's easy to convince ourselves that we are united by building communities of people just like us. Communities who think the same way, prefer the same things, and typically look the same way. And then we all get along and we think this is what Christian unity looks like when in reality we're just really loving ourselves. And this is revealed when someone like not like us, whether that be socially or ethnically or economically or culturally or politically or theologically, when someone not like us enters the community, there is this subtle pressure to conform to our uniformity or just find another community. But that's not the Trinity. The Trinity is unity and diversity. The Father is who He is with His unique role. The Son is who He is with His unique role. The Spirit is who He is with His unique role. Distinct personhood together as one. So, what does Jesus want? Not just oneness, Trinity oneness. Unity and diversity, or as I like to describe it, harmony. That's my word for it. A lot of talk about Unity and diversity and all this stuff. I like to, I, I like to use the word harmony to, to encapsulate all the Trinity. I say is divine harmony. What I say that different persons with different roles playing the same song. If you had a different parts of an orchestra playing different songs, it would sound awful. You have to have unity of song. They have to be playing the same song. But if you had different parts of orchestra playing the same notes and doing nothing unique in their parts, it would be boring. You have to have diversity of parts and roles. But when you have the same song played by diverse roles, 
it becomes something spectacular. And that is Jesus' prayer for us, that the harmony of the Trinity would resound within our communities. So that's what he wants. But why? Why does he want this so badly? Why, of all things, does he choose that we would be one as the Trinity is one for his prayer requests? Let's look at that now. Why does Jesus want it? Well, notice the so that clauses that are sprinkled throughout the prayer. For example, verse 21, that they may also be, be um, in us so that the world may believe. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know. He is praying for us in this. But what if I told you that Jesus isn't even primarily praying for us in this prayer, but he's actually praying for the world and he wants this for us because he wants the world. Oneness is decisively missional. We tend to only think of Jesus wanting this for us because it's good for us, and it certainly is. But you know what? It's good for the world. The world does not know their God. This is the essence of the fall, this this sinful severance of God and man. God is now defiled, denied, despised, and this is not only wrong, it is destructive. But God has had pity And in the name of love and mercy, God wants the world back. And that mission of reconciliation is being accomplished by those who have been reconciled to God. We are reconciled and entrusted the message of reconciliation. That is to say, the world is being, we are his ambassadors in this world, his his representation in the world. The world is being introduced to their God through the people of God. Now, we know that principle probably. You've heard that principle before. But do we know how it is accomplished? If I were to ask you, how do we introduce the creator of this world to the creatures of this world? Well, it is not accomplished by defeating the world with our arguments. It is not accomplished by appeasing the world through accommodation or compromise. It is not accomplished by condemning the world with our self-righteousness. It is accomplished by showing the world our God. And our God is most clearly seen in the oneness that Jesus is praying for. Unity and diversity in perfect harmony showing the world the Trinity. Jesus prays that we will be one so that the world may know. Know the God for whom they were made. Know the God of their salvation. Know the God of their satisfaction. Know the God that they are spending every day of their lives vainly searching to find in idols that cannot be for them their God. The world needs to know God. Show him to them. In our oneness. Which is not what we typically run to when we think about how to show the world God. We think about arguments. We think about techniques. We think about programs. None of that works in disunity. But when the world that is raging 
that has no idea what love looks like, that has no idea what true oneness looks like. This world that's longing for peace has no idea what peace looks like. This world that's longing for diversity, working together, but has no idea how that works. This world is longing for reconciliation, but has no idea what that looks like. When this world sees it embodied in the ambassadors of God, they say, oh, that's your God. We show the world the Trinity is what we do. So why does Jesus want it? Because he wants the world. (laughs) He wants the world to see him. But there's one more reason. It's not just that the world is desperate for this. We ourselves are desperate for this. Let's look at Jesus' final words in the upper room discourse. He gets very sentimental, very heartfelt. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. He's talking about where he's going. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. That's what he's saying. I've got to leave. I've got to leave. And he's pouring out his heart. He's saying, I want them to go with me. I want them to be with me. I want them to see my glory. I want them to experience your love. I have to leave, but I want to take them with me. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I know you. My people know you. I wish so badly I could take them with me to be with you. He says, but I've made known to you your name, and I will continue to make it known. That's the helper of the Spirit that we've talked so much about. Here's why, that last clause. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Did you notice that he switches to the language of love? He talks about oneness as the experience of love. His final prayer is is not that they would be one like the Trinity. It's actually that they would be loved like the Trinity. This is our destiny. Enveloped into the rapturous love of a triune God. But we're not there. And as much as Jesus wants to take us there. We're just not there yet at home within the love for which we were made. But he prays that we would be one like the Trinity. So that we would experience the love of the Trinity. Now make the connection. God's love is experienced now within our oneness. The day will come when we will experience the fullness of God's love within the oneness of the Trinity. But it is is available in part now through the oneness of God's people. Our oneness is how the world knows the Trinity and our oneness is how we experience the Trinity. He wants this for us because he wants himself for us. Do you want to experience the love of God? If you're a Christian, I, even if I don't know you, I know this. You want that so badly. How many conversations do I have to have? How many counseling appointments do I have to have? How many prayer requests do I have to receive saying, I just, I want to experience the love of God. My heart is so cold. My emotions have run dry. It feels so distant. But I want the love of God. And I know, I know this is your heart. 
that is aching for God's love, starving for God's love. Well, it's waiting for you. And it's waiting for you and the people in this room. Not in bland, generic gatherings, but in community that is one. The love of God is waiting with the people in this room, but it cannot be a surface. We don't know each other. We're not willing to go there gathering. It is in a community that is one as the Trinity is one. So the application is very obvious. Jesus has prayed for it. Let us be the answer to Jesus' prayer. Let us be one. More, specific, more specifically, I suppose we'd ask how. How do we do this? The application is very obvious. Be one as the Trinity is one. Maybe, maybe better. How? Well, um, I'm going to beat a dead horse that's been dead for a while, and we're just going to keep beating it. Um, parish group. It doesn't have to be a parish group. That's our offer, okay? That's, that's TCPC's offer, is to do the type of community that we're talking about here in parish group. It doesn't have to be. Find, find your group, whatever. But I think a smaller group forces us to face head-on unity and diversity in all of its challenges. You see, a big gathering like this can be anonymous. You can come here, you can slip in, you can slip out, you can say hi, and nobody knows you and you know nobody. But that's impossible in a parish group. Can't do that. You will be known, and you will know others. So you will have this depth of unity that God is calling us to do. In the same way, big gatherings can also foster uniformity, not diversity. But in a parish group, you can't. These these people that you look around and you say, yeah, they're probably all just like me. They all seem like me. We're at the same church, so I'm sure we kind of believe the same things, like the same things, all that stuff. Well, go to a parish group or go to a small group or whatever, and you'll you'll start to realize, oh, wow, actually... um, these people who I thought are just like me, um, no. They're, they have quirks that I don't have. They have gifts I don't have. They have perspectives that I don't have. They have experiences that I don't have. You get into smaller community and you realize just how diverse we truly are. So practically speaking, I am calling you to embrace the challenges and complexities of unity and diversity by committing to community. That could be just, I've been here for so long and I've never done the foundations week and I'm doing the foundations week, I'm doing it. It could be, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'm finally joining. It could be a parish group. It could be whatever. Just, just take the step toward community that forces you to face the challenges and complexities of unity and diversity. But if for no other reason, leading us now to the table. If not for the world that needs to see the Trinity, if not for you that needs to experience the love of Trinity, at least this, do this for Jesus. (laughs) Hey, buddy. (laughs) Um, Do you know how costly this prayer is? You know how costly this prayer is? 
know how much it cost Jesus to pray and to commit that we would be one? That last phrase there of the entire discourse, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. All right, now follow what's happened here. Earlier, Jesus says, you, Father, are in me, and I in you. And here he concludes the discourse with I in them. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. The Father is in Christ. My goodness, y'all, we're in. We've been let in. Not outsiders, not strangers who get to be witnesses of the Trinity's unity and love. No, no, no. We're in. When Jesus, when you sing in Christ alone, you know what that means? You're in. When Paul says over and over again, in Christ, union in Christ, you know what that means? You're actually in. And the Father's in, and Jesus is in, and the Spirit, we're in. Not a fourth person. We're in Christ, the third person. Do you know how much that cost? Do you know what it took to pull that one off? Well, we're done with John 17. John 18, you don't even have to start reading the passage. You can just look at the next heading. Arrest and betrayal. Pray for them. They may be one as I am one. They're one with me. We're one. Now let me go make this happen. He's off to get what we deserve so that we might get what he deserves. He goes to be rejected so that we might be welcomed. He goes to be clothed in our sin that we might be clothed in his righteousness so that we might stand before God as he is because he hung before God as we are. He goes to receive hell's worst that we might be welcomed into heaven's best. What can you say to our precious Savior? How can we thank our dear Lord Jesus? How about we just give him what he wants? We could start with that. How about we become what he prays that we would be. Father, I pray that they would be one. Let's give Jesus what he wants. Let me pray. Lord, as we face the challenges of oneness, the challenges of unity and diversity and all that that requires of us, help us to bear that willingly Because you, Jesus, bore the cross willingly for us. It was, it took a cross, Lord, to make us one with you. Lord, may we likewise bear the cross to be one with each other. And may the world know the God who is one, who is love. May they see it in our community as this world rages on. May they see it in us, a place that is one. Fill our hearts with the good news of your sacrifice now on the table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.